Second Samuel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Ba'ana, and the name of the other Rekah, the sons of Rimon, the Berothite of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Berothites fled to Gittaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news came, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mitzvishah. Then the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, Rechab and Ba'ana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house, as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Ba'ana his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our glory to study your word, to live it out. We know that your word gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It gives us guidance for every aspect of our lives, and we are grateful for that. We pray that you would anoint me and anoint each hearer, uh, that we might be those uh, people of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can see in your bulletins, I've titled the sermon, Why Revolutions Are Usually Evil. I don't think most of you are planning to stage your revolution. So you might wonder how in the world this is in any way relevant to your families. But it is. The same principles that led to the French Revolution flow very naturally from our children's hearts and really... Uh, we can see as a part of uh, uh, of life in general, unless God's grace subdues them. I, I've seen some of these principles at work in the RNC convention in this past week, and as we're going to be seeing, the actions of Rechab and Ba'ana uh, were revolutionary in an ungodly way. They looked more like the principles that drove the French Revolution than they do the principles that drove the American Revolution. Those two revolutions were poles apart. Most of our founding fathers despised the Jacobites of the French Revolution, 
And it's one of the reasons I prefer not even to call the American Revolution a revolution. I prefer to call it just the American War for Independence. Now, that term revolution is appropriate. If you look it up in the dictionary, it just means, you know, a, a complete change uh, of governments. It can be an appropriate term, but it has been so closely linked to some of the radical revolutions over time that I just prefer not to use it. Now, most of you are homeschoolers. I'm sure you've studied the French Revolution. I'm sure you understand uh, its implications. It is one of the top ten, if not one of the top five, most influential events in modern history. Uh, and the principles espoused by the revolutionary thinkers of that time have found their way into most of the over 200 revolutions that have taken place since 1789. That was the date of the, uh, the French Revolution. Now, their slogan sounded pretty catchy. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. But they did not define liberty the way God defines liberty, and so what it actually ended up doing is putting millions of Frenchmen uh, into bondage, and uh, if you count all of the revolutions that this revolution spawned, uh, it put millions, countless millions, uh, into bondage. How you define a term is very, very uh, important. Uh, the concept of equality was not defined by God, and it led to leveling countries, many countries, into economic oblivion. Uh, their uh, definition of fraternity actually fought against the concept of conversion to God, and so uh, this, uh, because it was a graceless concept, led to genocide after genocide uh, over the next uh, couple of centuries. Actually, the only part of their slogan that's really worked out has been death. <laughs> and there's been a lot of death that has flowed from uh, the revolutionary concepts that were systematized in France in the 1700s. Now, even though we're going to be seeing that Rousseau and Robespierre systematized these ideas, they've always been around. They're natural to the, the, the human spirit. The human spirit has always been a revolutionary spirit when you think about it. And so when you parents settle a dispute over a toy by making your children share their toys equally, and uh, have communal property, you have bought into one of the revolutionary principles of Rousseau and Robespierre. You might not have thought of it that way, but it really is. And the evil fruit that flows from this socialistic idea is really negative over time. And I've seen the fruits of this in adults uh, who have had that kind of a concept. Uh, we need to teach our children to respect private property. Now, when you allow your children to sass you, or perhaps... Uh, you lower your authority to a level where you want to be friends with your children. You treat them as equals. Again, you are buying into the ideas of Rousseau. It looks more like his wisdom than the wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, when you are too tired to act as a judge or an arbiter in some of your children's disputes, and you tell them, go away, leave me alone, stop being a pest. Uh, you go settle your own problems. Uh, again, uh, you are siding with Rousseau over against David. And there are a lot of different ways in which Americans have rejected the principles upon which the American so-called revolution was built and have adopted the evil principles that flowed from the French Revolution and actually most revolutions that have followed. So even though you're not a Marxist guerrilla in Africa who needs to be called to, re to repentance, Really, these are universal principles that we're going to be looking at that apply to family, church, 
and state. And uh, we're going to be seeing now three revolutionary murderers and try to isolate the difference between David's fight for God and the revolutionary fight for something else. And actually, if you look at your outlines, uh, there's one principle I didn't put into your outlines that I think is important. It is that revolutions tend to produce never-ending revolutions. Um, and in this passage, the revolutionary slaughter of Abner bred the revolutionary slaughter of Ishbosheth. When you've got a, a revolution that happens in Africa, it not only produces a brand new tyranny, but it makes the people long for another uh, revolution. And uh, this is one of the reasons why David treated the revolutionary tactics so seriously. It had to be stopped, and he was modeling something different. He was modeling principles that enabled Judah to be a very stable uh, republic for centuries, even when unbelievers were on the throne in, in, in Judah, whereas northern Israel, especially after the time of, of Jeroboam, uh, bought into some of the principles of Rousseau and Robespierre long before they existed, and you had one revolution after another. In northern Israel, there were times where you didn't even have a king ruling for a year or two. I mean, it was just one switchover uh, after uh, another. And so northern Israel vacillated between a tough, strong guy who imposed stability at the loss of freedom or fearful military coups that weren't much better. Now, there were some conservatives in the north, uh, but usually they either didn't last very long or uh, they um, they um, uh, uh, themselves began to be strong men again and uh, have a centralized government. Now, let's start with verse 1. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Why was one act of revolutionary revenge, why was one act uh, more debilitating of people's uh, confidence and more fearful than hundreds and hundreds of deaths that had occurred over the previous seven and a half years? Now, you might chalk it up to the fact that Abner was a, a great, general, and nobody was going to be able to, to, to replace him. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, we're going to be seeing in uh, some upcoming uh, sermon that there were remarkable military leaders in the north who could very easily have replaced uh, Abner. What was frightening was the way this death happened in the previous chapter. The killing of Abner showed that Joab was willing to break a treaty violate his own constitution, defy God's law, ignore the wishes of his commander-in-chief, and destabilize society in order to get personal revenge. Now that is scary. It leaves everything in society unsettled, much like modern Zimbabwe has. And this is one of the fundamental differences between the American Revolution and over 90% of the other revolutions that have happened in the last uh, couple hundred years. The American Revolution was standing upon law, seeking to enforce covenants and law, and it was really the Brits who were acting as the revolutionaries, not the Americans. The Brits were the ones who were overturning the charters of the colony. It was the Parliament that was usurping powers that they didn't have. It was Parliament that was taxing what was not theirs to tax that was violating common law principles, ignoring the Magna Carta, habeas corpus, and other things like that. 
you just read the Declaration of Independence sometime, and you will see that it was an argument that the Brits were the lawless revolutionaries and the Americans were the law keepers who were lawfully separating. It's an apologetic for why this war was legitimate. And this is a critical divide between non-reformed people like Norman Geisler and reformed people like Francis Schaeffer um, <laughs> in their writings about the war for independence. In his book, Christian Ethics, Options and Issues, Geisler argues that the American war for independence was wicked. It's a wicked revolution. And uh, that martyrdom and decimation would have been preferable to rebellion. He says, quote, the American Revolution was not just. It is not possible to justify the American Revolution. Now, what he's arguing from in that chapter, he was uh, arguing based on a total misunderstanding of some earlier chapters in 1 Samuel that we've already uh, looked at. Now, in contrast to Norman Geisler, Francis Schaeffer uh, takes a quite different perspective. He argues that the war for independence was a lawful war and that the civil magistrates in America were duty-bound to resist the British. That's quite a difference. Wicked versus, no, they're duty-bound. In fact, they're serving God in, in, in resisting uh, the British. Uh, he correctly argues that the colonial cry, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God, was biblical. By the way, their other um, rallying cry at the war, time of the war was, we have no king but Jesus. Uh, it, was, uh, it was some great, uh, at least, rhetoric that was going on. But if you don't understand the reformational teaching on resistance to evil, you're not going to have the balance that can avoid either the, uh, the dangers of dictatorship on the one hand or the dangers of mobocracy on the other hand. Francis Schaeffer appealed to the central doctrine of the French reformers that there was a two-way covenant. Two-way covenant. The Huguenots, by the way, were the French reformers. And uh, the Huguenots' view of the two-fold covenant, I think, crystallizes the difference between the Huguenot wars against French tyranny and the, the Robespierre-type wars against French tyranny. Both of them hated tyrants. They did not like tyranny. But if you look in your outlines, you'll see the reform view of civil government in the first picture up there is on the left-hand side of that picture. And uh, the, the French revolutionary view is on the second side, the right-hand side of that picture. Now, the reform view of civil government sees not only a covenant between the citizens and the king, but there is also a covenantal responsibility between the king and God and between the citizens and God. And so the king was enforcing God's law against citizens who violated God's law. And the citizens, through their representatives, were enforcing God's covenant against kings who violated God's law. So there's checks and balances when God's law is put into the equation. Now, the American war for independence can be justified as the enforcement of God's law against a tyrannical government. It's the left-hand side of that chart. Uh, it, it, both the King of England and Parliament of England have broken covenant with God and with the colonies. They have broken their contract. Now, in contrast to that left-hand chart, Rousseau and Robespierre threw God out of the equation. They said, what a civil government is, is it's a covenant or it's a contract between citizens and the king. 
Now, if you read some of their literature initially, it seems like, okay, it's it's pretty cool concept. The problem is, who is the enforcer of the rules and who is the guy that makes up the rules? It's the king who makes up the rules and the citizens who have put that king into place or that ruler into place uh, through revolution. They have absolutely no recourse when this guy goes out of hand and he makes all kinds of rules that are not lawful uh, rules. There's nothing to stop absolute tyranny. So the French Revolution, which called for liberty, equality, fraternity, or death, executed 40,000 people with a guillotine, over 300,000 people through firing squad, drowning, and other methods. And if you count the next 25 years, they were responsible for over a million deaths. <clears throat> and uh, actually, if you count the, the next couple hundred years, because they really spawned a lot of what uh, Marxist uh, communism was about, it's countless millions of people who have died as a result of these principles. And the question is, why? It's because governments make up their own laws. They do not submit to the law of God. And it's a terrifying thing when a government is utterly unaccountable, unaccountable to the people, unaccountable to other civic officers, unaccountable to any law above them. There's nothing to appeal to. And uh, we're seeing less and less uh, of our own country submitting to the Constitution, submitting to God's law. Uh, it's a, it's a, a total hoax when we pledge allegiance as being one nation under God. Uh, we are no longer under God. I mean, at the uh, last week's RNC um, convention, they're not even following Robert's rules. I mean, usually bureaucrats at least try to make some, you know, show of following Robert's rules. But they're, th that, this is what happens when you have uh, people who are trying to deal with emergencies but they're dealing it in men's ways. And so you need to be troubled. Uh, there is no safety if you've got a situation like verse 1. If a Joab can kill an Abner during a time of peace, after a treaty is signed, then nobody would be safe from the revenge of David's armies. Now, I've spent more time in that first point because I'm trying to set a context for the other points. And so let's move on to verse 2. And technically, in your outlines, this probably should have come under Roman numeral 2, but we're going to deal with it here anyway. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Ba'ana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Birothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Biroth also was part of Benjamin. Now, it's often asked by people, what kind of civil officer can authorize a, a, a resistance or an overthrow of a government. Here are two captains of Israel's army. Would they count? Are you allowed to have a military overthrow or military coup? And the reformed answer is no. No, you cannot. It's got to be some executive officer, whether an Amer a president or a, a governor or a, a mayor or a sheriff, to use American uh, terminology. And, and by the way, just because an uh, executive officer calls you to war does not mean it's a justified war. You've got to look at Luke 14 and quite a number of other passages to know, is this just or not? By the way, one of the books that's just fabulous, does an in incredible exegesis, was one of the uh, French reformers. Uh, his pen name was Junius Brutus. He wrote the book, A Defense of Liberty uh, Against Tyrants. Now, I've already dealt with that in two sermons in the past, so I'm not going to reiterate that here. 
But this does bring up another basic difference between the lawful resistance of the American War, American Revolution, and the storming of the Bastille, which the French still celebrate, Bastille Day. Uh, the American War did not destabilize society, did not overthrow lawful forms of government, whereas Bastille Day and the years that followed did. The American War was authorized by executive officers from the local counties all the way up to the heads of the various colonies. But Bastille Day was citizens taking the revolution into their own hands. And it got co-opted pretty quickly by thugs. And that's almost always the way it happened. You know, the people's movement uh, pretty much quickly gets co-opted by some thug. And you got a worse tyranny than you had that was overthrown before. It was every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. Now, if a lower magistrate, say a prince of Benjamin, had sent these officers to kill Ishbosheth after a lawful call to war, that would be different. But there was no call to war. Since a peace treaty had been signed, there was no executive officer that had authorized these captains to engage in assassination. The Bible would treat this as wicked. Okay? To fail to follow the Bible's clearly laid out chain of command, clearly laid out separation of powers, clearly laid out jurisdictions, is to destabilize society and everything is up for grabs. In fact, the most guerrilla warfare that we have seen in the last hundred years, they have very deliberately tried to destabilize society. That's one of the Marxist tactics. And if Obama gets elected for another four years, we might see more of that kind of destabilization. But Marxists try to do that. And when you see people who thumb the nose at legitimate authorities that God has established, whether we're talking about parents, husbands, church officers, civil officers, what they're doing really is they are exhibiting a revolutionary spirit. Now, it is not revolution for a Congress to impeach a president. It is not revolutionary for a, 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 a president uh, to ignore unconstitutional laws passed by Congress or for a, a court to declare something to be unconstitutional, if indeed it is unconstitutional. Okay, A lot of times they will use that and it's not. But that's not revolutionary. It is not revolutionary for a wife to appeal to a session for bringing church discipline against her husband who's engaging in physical abuse. A spousal abuse. No, that's following lawful, God-given lines of authority. So we got to distinguish those types of things. And understanding civics and church government is really important if you want to protect your liberties. It may sound like a boring subject, uh, but it's critically important. And I would encourage you not to ignore it in your homeschooling. Most homeschoolers probably don't have a clue as to whether or not current policies that are being engaged in America are legitimate or if they're revolutionary. On what basis would you even be able to decide that? We've got to look at the scriptures. I have seen liberties erased in various churches because a pastor was not acting under authority. Now, if you were to ask the local members of the congregation, they might say, well, I don't like what he's doing, but they would have no way of knowing, is this revolutionary or is this lawful? On the other hand, I have seen churches destroyed because there are rekabs and ba'anas who take things into their own hands and they stir up trouble and they cause dissension. They're not following the biblical lines of authority that God has laid out. And revolutionary attitudes and actions can occur within families as well. So the point is you can apply these principles universally. 
verse 3. Because the Berothites fled to Gittayim and have been sojourners there until this day. Who were the Berothites? If you look it up in a Bible dictionary, you will see that the Beroth was a city of Gibeon. The Gibeonites were Canaanites who had become believers in the book of Joshua. They were incorporated into the people of God. They joined the church, so to speak, and uh, they became a part of God's covenant people. But because of the color of their skin, because of their ancestry, uh, people didn't always treat them fairly. And what happens during times of revolutionary behavior? Minorities frequently suffer. Uh, this is what happens even on a, a lesser scale, you know, at the RNC, where minorities are not even heard. But uh, you definitely see it in major revolutions. It's what happened... Um, in 1992, the Los Angeles riots, what happens? Minority shopkeepers uh, were pillaged. What happened during the 1994 revolutionary attacks of the Hutus against the Tutsis in Rwanda? It's a massacre of minority, weak citizens, and their wealth was confiscated. So what was happening in this passage is that the Benjamites, late in the reign of, there's differences of opinion here, late in the reign of Saul or early in the reign of Abner, had confiscated the territory of Beeroth from the Gibeonites. It wasn't lawful. It was revolutionary. Many Gibeonites died. And David later has to rectify this problem. He actually ends up killing some of the sons of Saul who were responsible for this slaughter of some of the, uh, of the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites, they flee from Beeroth uh, over to Gitaim. And uh, they have been sojourners there for some time. There was a massive redistribution of wealth. And these two captains have become the recipients of some of this redistribution of wealth. And so there is a, there is a deliberate uh, 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 setting up of uh, these bureaucrats we're going to be seeing against you know, people like uh, Mephibosheth. We'll get to that in a bit. R.J. Rushton, he said, if the law discriminates against the weak, because they are weak, and the strong because they are strong, then it ceases to be law and is an instrument of oppression. And this highlights yet another difference between the American War for Independence and the French Revolution that happened a little over a decade later. It was They were pretty close together. France engaged in massive theft, massive redistribution of wealth. Now, they did it in the name of the poor and the downtrodden, but very few of the poor and downtrodden actually benefited. Uh, most of the people in France uh, suffered in the massive social upheaval. Most of the revolutions since that time have done exactly the same thing. What happens is it's usually captains. You know, it's, it's people who are faithful warriors in the, in, in the army who benefit from a lot of that redistribution of wealth, just like Baaka and uh, Rakob did. Revolution is grounded in envy, whereas God gave governments to protect private property. Now, during the War for Independence, you saw the Brits confiscating uh, a lot of stuff uh, from the people, and, and the Americans, for the most part, did not do that. They respected private property. And again, this is one of the reasons why I find it a little bit offensive to liken the American War for Independence to a revolution. They were really uh, quite different. And we need to make sure that our views of wealth and property flow 
from the views of the French reformers, not from the views of the French revolutionaries. Point D outlines another distinctive by which to judge revolutions. Does the end result of the philosophy protect individuals, or are individuals lost in a sea of we, the people? Now, for France's revolution, everything was done in the name of the people, okay? But individuals suffered. They were lost in a sea of the people. And I don't have time to develop this theme, but I believe it's part, in part why Mephibosheth is introduced here. If you read through the commentaries, and I've got a boatload of commentaries on this, commentaries are puzzled as to why in the world this writer would introduce this irrelevant material. Now, one of them says, well, maybe they're introducing it to give you a heads up that he's going to talk about Mephibosheth in a few chapters. But no, it's not irrelevant at all. Let me try to explain why it fits in here. <clears throat> not only does it introduce the, the story of Mephibosheth, where David later is going to bless Mephibosheth from his own resources, not from public monies, his own resources, but it stands in stark contrast to the socialistic wealth that is being inherited by these captains of Beerah. Mephibosheth and these two men, I think, are very deliberately being uh, 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 juxtaposed. In revolutionary governments, there are always winners and losers, whereas in God's economy, everyone is treated equally, whether it's a, a crippled Mephibosheth or some unknown citizen. So let's read verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, Abner didn't think much of, of Ishbosheth. We've already seen that in the last uh, chapter. He thought even less of Mephibosheth. He basically discarded uh, Mephibosheth. And we'll see that David later restores to Mephibosheth what Abner had stolen from him. Now, I would assume that his lame feet kept him from being a threat. And so kept him alive, actually. He might have been killed otherwise. And so God's promise to perpetuate a seed for Jonathan was, was kept alive. Now let's quickly look at six principles that can be found in the murder of Ishbosheth by the two revolutionaries, Rechab and Ba'anah. Verse 5. Then the sons of Rimon the Birothite, Rechab, and Ba'anah set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. Now, the only thing I'm going to pull out here is that this was a 40-mile trip, actually a little bit more than 40 miles, which means they had plenty of time to think and to plan this assassination. It was clearly premeditated, so the question was, is it premeditated murder or is it premeditated patriotism? In our discussions of the principles of resistance a few months ago, we saw that the assassination itself is not the problem. The problem would have been whether it met all the biblical criteria that would take it from murder to a legitimate act of resistance to tyranny. And, of course, the reform position would be this was not legitimate. It was premeditated murder. Tyranny by itself never justifies private citizen or a military leader assassinating the leader of their country. We've already seen that in 1 Samuel. Now that's not to say tyrants aren't guilty of murder. They can be, and they can be tried for war crimes after the war is done. But the 
the um, you don't answer the tyrannical declarations of sovereignty of the state by asserting the 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 sovereignty of the individual. Both are humanistic concepts. Rushduni rightly says, not surprisingly, the assertion of the sovereignty of the state, a humanistic concept, led in the 18th and 19th centuries to a counter-assertion, the sovereignty of the individual. Again, a humanistic principle. The point is, both the nation and the individual should be seen as being under God, under his law, in submission to God's representatives. Only God has absolute sovereignty, and only he can define resistance. The next point asks whether verses 6 through 7 uh, represent a legitimate invasion of a home or whether it's a violation of private property. They say, and they came there all the way into the house. So there's a, a violation of private space. As though to get wheat, that's deception and subterfuge, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped, for when they came into the house, why repeat that again? I think it's on purpose. He was lying on his bed in his bedroom. In other words, he was a non-combatant. But notice again the emphasis on this being a private place, you know, in his bedroom. Then they struck him, killed him, beheaded him, and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. There's actually a, a number of principles we could have talked about that I'm not going to talk about this morning in those two verses. I just want to focus on one. And that is invasion of personal property and privacy. Is it legitimate for army captains to unilaterally do this? Now, obviously, in a lawful war, uh, you can kick the enemy's door in and kill him. Uh, the Old Testament justifies that over and over again. But this is not a time of war. Everybody knows that Abner has negotiated a peace treaty with David. Now, some people might appeal to Judges chapter 3, where Ehud went into the king's private summer chamber, locked the doors, killed Eglon, the, the king of Moab. But those two stories are totally different in terms of, of context. Uh, Ehud uh, was the leader of the executive branch of Israel. He was authorized to declare war, authorized to do a preemptive first strike attack. He was authorized to assassinate the enemy. He'd, uh, and the enemy had already conquered Israel. They were an, a foreign occupying force. So again, very, very different than what's going on here. Here, it's two unauthorized military officers entering private property without permission of either the government or the owner of that property. Now, you might believe that there really is no such thing as a biblical doctrine of privacy, and I've seen people argue that, but there is. Let me try to make a case for it. Exodus 22, 2-3 gives Florida's castle doctrine. And God clearly teaches in 1 Kings 21 that the sanctity of your property from invasion applies even to kings. So, Joel, you're absolutely right in our previous discussions. Even kings may not invade your property or kick down your door without very clearly defined things in God's law. There's exceptions that the law sets up. And when you study it, the Bill of Rights is a marvelous, marvelous biblical document. Uh, and uh, you could call it a bill of restrictions to the government. So there is a biblical castle doctrine. Now this would make the broad powers of the Patriot Act and NDAA unlawful because they give the government the right to spy on every conversation, to invade every home with surveillance, to break down any door 
just on a mere suspicion, and to kill American citizens on mere accusation. So these new powers that the Americans have arrogated to themselves resemble more King George and resemble more the revolutionary France than it does anything that happened on our side in the, the war for independence. And so what's happening is our government has been adopting revolutionary principles to fight against revolutionaries. Well, that's a dangerous place to go. You don't answer lawlessness with more lawlessness. But that's exactly what America is doing in their fight against uh, terrorism and their war against drugs. They're fighting lawlessness with lawlessness. Both of those are unconstitutional and lawless. Now, in our first war for independence, our founding fathers were so upset with the British quartering their troops in our people's houses and their confiscation of weapons, their violation of habeas corpus, snatching people away from their families, and secretly taking them to Britain, where they were tortured, that they instituted Amendments 1 through 6 of the Constitution. I think citizens must study the principles in the Bill of Rights. They've got to understand what those are. They are there because our Founding Fathers hated the revolutionary principles of the Jacobites of France. There are a couple of exceptions amongst our Founding Fathers, but most of them hated uh, those revolutionary principles. In France, you could go to the firing squad because of an anonymous tip. No court trial, no facing your accusers, no habeas corpus. A soldier could come into your home and shoot you just like Rechab and Ba'ana did. Now the next question that I ask is, was this unprincipled revenge or le legitimate vengeance? In verse 8, the two revolutionaries claim, hey, we're taking vengeance for God. Okay, they're claiming that they're a, a high moral standard. Verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. So how do you tell if it's unprincipled revenge or if it's God's vengeance? Romans 13 says a civil magistrate has a responsibility to be God's minister of vengeance, but it very quickly adds that the magistrate is subject to God's laws. So it's not an issue of whether vengeance is allowed or not. Of course it's allowed. Uh, one of the implications of Romans 13, though, is that if God's laws are violated in the execution, by definition, the execution is not God's vengeance, and it is an insult to God's justice to call it his vengeance. Now, applying that to our passage, if Israel had still been at war, it might have been different. But the whole army knew that hostilities had ceased, that a peace treaty had been signed, and so this can no longer be judged by war ethics. It has to be judged by peacetime ethics. And I can't give you all of the checks and balances that the Bible gives and what's allowable during war, what's allowable during a time of peace. But let me give you a sampling of things that show that Rechab and Ba'ana had violated God's laws. I've already mentioned the castle doctrine. Let me give you five more. And to make it easy on them, let's assume that Ishbosheth was guilty. Uh, it was a notorious war criminal. Okay, let's assume the worst of them. David denies that. He says he was a righteous man, but let's assume he's a notorious war criminal. First principle given Abner's peace treaty, Ishbosheth could not be executed for war crimes without a trial. Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 17. Now, both of those passages, by the way, say that the king can act as a judge. 
and it mentions that other people, and i got a boatload of scriptures in my notes here, that other uh, people can be dealing with lower, lesser level issues as judges as well. And I've got a number of uh, uh, passages here indicate that a trial can be very, very speedy. That's all authorized, but a fair trial is guaranteed to anyone accused of a, cr of a crime of any nature. Second, the trial had to be public or in the gates. And I've got a bunch of scriptures that show that. And the execution needed to be public and not private. And I've got a lot of scriptures on that. Now, this prevented the civil government from turning the court into an intimidation machine. It also made the government accountable to the people. They're seeing what the government is doing, and um, it um, uh, uh, it um, enabled the uh, the government to be basically judged by God's law, whether they're doing it rightly or not. And so the people they were holding to this twofold covenant. So based on that, these two officers violated those laws. Third. When a person pled innocent, the case had to be established with a minimum of two witnesses, some situations three. That's Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Now, there couldn't be any less than two. That protected the, the, the accused, and it couldn't be any more than three. And that would keep a, a judge who said, man, I want to let this criminal off the hook. I'm going to make five as the minimum number of witnesses before he can be executed. Minimum of two, maximum of three. Fourth, the witnesses were supposed to bring the case to court, to be the prosecution, to be involved in the execution if it was a capital crime. And if witnesses could not prove the charges, they just had to leave it in God's hands. And I've got several scriptures to prove that. And then fifth, the privilege of defending yourself in court was always accorded to the accused. And I've got some scriptures on that. Now, those five and a number, quite a number of other principles show that what Rechab and Ba'ana did was murder. They had violated God's law. Even terrorists have certain rights. Now, obviously, if they admit guilt, they can be immediately executed, but rights don't disappear simply because somebody is suspected to be the enemy. The revolution in France and most of the revolutions since that time have lacked these biblical restraints. In contrast, British soldiers who molested Americans, even in the, the tense, tense years leading up to the war, they got a fair trial in American courts. If you want a Christian civilization, you must promote biblical principles of jurisprudence. The kinds of things that are beginning to happen in America smack more of Rechab and Ba'ana than they do of David. Okay, the next principle is the issue of divine guidance versus human reason, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berithite, and said to him, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. David's first principle was not the sovereign individual. It was not human rights. It was not human desires, values, or goals. His first principle was God. He took an oath in God. He knew he was accountable to God. And our founding fathers in America understood this principle. It's one of the reasons why we have the national motto, In God We Trust, and uh, One Nation Under God. In a Reader's Digest article, Alexander Saul wrote, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of the Russian Revolution. 
In the process, I've collected hundreds of personal testimonies, read hundreds of books, and contributed eight volumes of my own. But if I were asked today to formulate as precisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million Russians, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat the phrase, men have forgotten God. What is more, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, I would be unable to reflect anything more precise than this statement, men have forgotten God. For Thomas Paine, who, by the way, most of our founding fathers despised, for Thomas Paine, resistance to tyrants was the assertion of individual sovereignty. For most of our founding fathers, their motto was, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. David was not a revolutionary. And someone might say, well, yeah, he was. He just killed the, you know, these sons of Beerah. Um, and and they, they said, the Lord is avenged. And so you got two people here claiming God's justice. Uh, you know, why would you accuse them if they're claiming God and David's claiming God? So how do you tell the difference? Presidents have used God to justify ungodly wars. There have even been bloodthirsty revolutions that have claimed to do it in the name of God. You look at quite a number of the revolutions in South Africa and some of them in Africa. Who are they? Uh, who are a lot of the people led by? Liberation theologians. So even revolutions can be engaged in in the name of God. So how do you discern humanism versus divine sa sa uh, sanction? You do not do it by reading Norman Geisler's books on Christian ethics. He rejects biblical laws being relevant to governments, and he adopts a nebulous concept of natural law. And that's why he thought the American war for independence was ungodly, was an unjust war. Apart from the law of God, you have no way of knowing what is resistance to tyranny, uh, whether it's just or unjust. You cannot get away from that. It's either God's law or it's humanism. And unfortunately, Geisler opts for humanism in civil government. And really, there are no other options. God's law or man's law? Logically, there are no other. R.J. Rushdoony said, Godly obedience is the best ground for resistance to evil in that it stands primarily in terms of a higher obedience to God and therefore is, in obedience, independent and in resistance to tyrants, obedient to the higher authority of God. This is the distinction between most revolutions and the American War for Independence. The American War was characterized by submission to God's law. Obedient, uh, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Whereas, France was characterized by rebellion against authority and the elevation of the, of the sovereign individual. Some of you have read Thomas Paine's works. It gets distributed all over the place nowadays and other advocates of sovereign individual. It's a scary philosophy, and it has led to bloody revolutions where individual rights have been stripped. In fact, some of these guys have said, we need a, a new revolution every every generation. Some have said every 10 years. Uh, that's not the answer. James calls God's Old Testament law the perfect law of liberty. It is the only solution that provides lasting liberty. The next principle can be seen in verse 10. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Now, the implication was that these men were just as mercenary as that Amalekite had been. 
And while some ungodly revolutions have had very self-sacrificing people uh, who have just given up their all, and you can admire them for that, in most revolutions, you've got people like Abner who just use such dupes. And if they can't use them, they will discard them. In contrast, the men who fought the American War for Independence knew that they were signing their death warrants and perhaps the loss of everything when they signed the Declaration of Independence. But they loved liberty enough to make such sacrifices. They said, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, did that mean that everybody who joined the uh, first war for independence uh, had that kind of a godly, self-sacrificing attitude? I'd say absolutely not. There are there a lot of ungodly people in that war. Uh, there's the story of this uh, guy dressed in civilian clothing who was riding past a group of American soldiers during the war. And there was a leader there who was shouting and yelling commands at his utterly exhausted soldiers. Uh, they didn't have enough people to be doing the work. And he's shouting at them. And this, this man dressed in civilian clothing asked why he was not helping. And the leader retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers, and when the job was done, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief, and I will come and help again. It was none other than George Washington. and He was modeling really what David did. Uh, David, for the most part, tended to have that kind of servant heart. Now, that does not mean that uh, people with servant hearts won't accidentally fall into revolutionary attitudes, but there's a tendency to be able to detect uh, revolutionary attitudes and to avoid them if you've got a servant's heart, whether it's in the family, in the church, or in the state. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And I'll just stop reading right there. Now one objection people uh, have brought up is David executed these men, they, they say, without a court trial. Is this any different than what Rechab and Ba'anah did? But there isn't a single law that I have cited that David broke. Not a single law. No trial was needed because these men had admitted that they had killed Ishbosheth in cold blood. Now, we aren't told if they said more or if David was cross-examining them to get more information. But David somehow knows they killed him in his own bed. That wasn't a part of their speech, at least not the part of the speech that's recorded here. So obviously, they've either said more than is recorded here, or David has cross-examined them to get more than is recorded here. So there was a court scene probably going on here. But the point is, even what they gave in their testimony was enough to self-convict them by God's law. They were guilty of murder, and no lesser punishment than capital punishment is allowed for murder. But that means we must be extremely careful in our philosophy of self-defense and in our philosophy of war. 
If you're going to use weapons, whether in the army or outside the army, you need to know what is legitimate killing and what is not. David called these men wicked based on their violation of God's law, and he called Ishbosheth a righteous man. Now, by the way, when he calls him a righteous man, this is legal court jargon. He's not saying that Ishbosheth was justified in seizing the government or in the war against David. It was a war of aggression. He is speaking of wickedness on one side, righteousness on the other side, as a judge in terms of what evidence has come into this court. It's just this jurisdiction of what he is dealing with right here. And without God's law, you cannot make such pronouncements. He's vindicated. He's guilty. You cannot make those kind of pronouncements. And it's why it's such a tragic judicial revolution when Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Helms, Holmes uh, unconstitutionally threw out common law from our courts and substituted evolutionary law. Now, it's still in our Constitution. It's Amendment 7. Now, it's never been taken away. It's just that we've had a revolution in our court system. We've had a revolution in the way the executive office lives, and we've had a revolution in the way the Congress functions. Modern civics has been more influenced by the French revolutionaries, Rousseau and Robespierre, than they have by the French reformers, such as Beza, Coligny, Mornay, Langouet, and Dano. And those are names, by the way, that you ought to get familiar with. Mornay was the writer of the Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. He used the pen name Junius Brutus because he didn't want to get whacked. Uh, <laughs> but uh, incredibly influential book. Uh, in fact, uh, John Adams, the second president of the United States, says those five French reformers, along with the Scottish one by the name of Samuel Rutherford, who wrote Lex Rex, those six had an incredible influence upon the discussions of our founding fathers as they were discussing the, the war for independence. They understood the Calvinistic doctrines. Abraham Lincoln, on the other hand, bought into the Jacobite ideas of the revolutionary France. And the title of Rutherford's book says it all, Lex Rex. The law is king. The Bible would describe King George and the English Parliament as ungodly revolutionaries when they said the opposite, rex lex, the king is law. When man becomes the law, whether it's a sovereign individual or whether it's a theologian like Geisler or whether it's a king, it is a revolution against God's authority. That is true all the way across America. We have had a revolution. Rex lex is a rebellion against Christ's kingdom. And Samuel Rutherford risked his life when he wrote the opposite, Lex Rex, God's law is king, and kings are judged by that. This is what Christians have to get back to. If we're to successfully overturn the humanistic revolutionaries that are destroying our nation, we must convince the church to pick up the mantle of our founding fathers and to say, Lex Rex, God's law is king, no king but Jesus. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Now, because God's law was king for David, he was able to navigate the treacherous waters of the early chapters of Second Samuel. He reconciled northern England, uh, northern, not England, northern Israel, uh, by clearly distancing himself from the lawless revolutionary behavior. He reconciled himself to northern Israel by showing that he cared about justice for one single individual. His non-revolutionary approach to civics enabled him to respect governmental jurisdictions. He respected those jurisdictions by taking care of bad actions in the past. Verse 12 goes on to say, 
But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. That act was saying, look, I fully intended to honor the peace treaty that I signed with Abner. And in the next chapter, he respects the already established authorities in northern Israel. He didn't try to merge them into jurisdictional units that he could control. Instead, he honored localism, and he earned the right to be honored by them. The French approach, uh, and the French Revolution was the opposite. It used force, deceit, terror, manipulation to try to control a country that Robespierre had savaged. And it was a divine irony that he got beheaded on the same guillotine that he had so murderously used. And until the church as a whole understands the distinctions between lawful civics and revolutionary civics, we are not going to make much progress in advancing liberty in America. And I'm sorry, neither, neither major party of politics really understands the difference. There are a few Republicans who do. But let me end by quoting Peter Hammond on the fruit of the French Revolution. He said the tools of the French Revolution were disinformation, propaganda, the subversion of language, malice, envy, hatred, jealousy, mass murder, and foreign military adventurism as a diversion to distract the masses from the failure of government. I mean, it sounds so similar to what's been going on today. Now, we've not progressed quite as far, but we're on that slippery slope down. Hammond continues, these tools have been implemented by more modern revolutionaries, Vladimir Lenin, Trotsky, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, uh, Patrice Lumumba, uh, Nikolai Sosesco, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, and Robert Mugabe. The French Revolution was the prototype, which was followed by the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Cambodian Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, the Ethiopian Revolution, the Mozambican Revolution, the Angolan Revolution, the Zimbabwe Revolution, and many others. In every case, they proved that yesterday's revolutionaries become tomorrow's tyrants and dictators. In other words, Thomas Paine's call to revolution is not the answer. It will just lead to never-ending revolutions. Tyrants never look like tyrants at first. They seem like liberty. They promise liberty, liberty, equality, fraternity, or death, but it always leads to a culture of death. In Proverbs 8:36, the wisdom of God's law says, all those who hate me love death. So I hope this sermon helps to inform you on what is needed in America. We need reformation, not simply a change of parties. It is time to promote the French reformational writings and the biblical principles of resistance to tyranny. Those are the principles that produce the longest lasting peace and prosperity that planet Earth has ever seen. But we also need to make sure that we are not borrowing any French revolutionary principles in family, church, and state. So put off revolution, put on reformation. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient to deal with all of the problems that we face in society. Thank you that you have set your church to be a light uh, to the nations, a light set on a hill. I pray that you would help the church of Jesus Christ to provide answers for those who are seeking. And Father, through whatever ripples uh, that you intend from our congregation, may those ripples uh, have an influence in America. And may you raise up many other stones that are thrown into the water, sending a ripples across this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.